0: Science Talk will begin after this short message.
1: Hey all, I'm hoping you'll join me in a step back into the past. A past where you, pa, ma, grandma, and grandpappy might head down to the local state fair to enter what was once called a fitter families competition.
2: And these were not about athletics. They were held in the name of eugenics. Families would happily line up to be judged on their breeding just like livestock. My name is Brian. And I'm Andrea. We're from
1: Base Pairs, the official podcast of Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. And there's some huge new science that's making this unsettling American history
2: an urgent issue. More on that later in the episode. Stay tuned.
0: Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, posted on November 11th, 2017. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode...
3: So if you go, for example, from the scale that we associate with the size of an atom down to the size of the atomic nucleus, is at least another five orders of magnitude. And there's not much there. It's just maybe a fleeting electron. But we're made of all of that. That's Caleb Scharf.
0: He's an astronomer and the director of Columbia University's Astrobiology Center. His latest book is The Zoomable Universe, an epic tour through cosmic scale from almost everything to almost nothing. It's published by Scientific American and Farrah Strauss and Giroux. He also blogs for Scientific American. We met at his Columbia University office on Broadway and 120th Street in Manhattan. When you get a new car, it comes with this manual that most people never even look at. But this book kind of, and I don't mean this in a pejorative sense, the book is absolutely gorgeous to look at. But it reminds me of, here's your manual. Here's everything <laughs>
3: you need for operating your your new universe wow, I hadn't thought of it that way. But you're right. It does kind of have that feel to it. And uh, yeah, that wasn't the intent. But it's actually cool that it, it feels that way. I, I, I can see why because it's systematic. But it also kind of stops off at lots of different places along the way. So it's like, okay, here's the steering wheel. But did you know exactly. <laughs> that you can also do this? You know, if you push that button or, or pull this. And if you're having
0: a problem with, for example the uh, the indicator lights, you can go right to that section. If you're having a problem with the immediate uh, microscopic realm, you can jump right to that section of the
3: book. That's right. If you're concerned about planets, you can hop in there or if you wonder what bacteria are really up to you can you can flip a few pages and you you get that information. Uh, yeah, yeah, it does kind of work like a user's manual. I like that. That's a good way to think about it. It's a user's manual for. Physical reality. And you, and also the
0: artwork by Ron Miller is stupendous, um, but you cover 60 orders of magnitude approximately. 63. 63, if we're exact about it. In size. Yes. Um, it's hard to really appreciate what that means. I mean, you can you can write uh, the number, the numeral one with 63 zeros following it, but that that doesn't mean anything really to a human mind. So, can you explain what that is? <laughs> I mean, you do it in the book by yeah. by breaking it down into different realms. But sixty-three orders of magnitude is such a vast stretch.
3: It's it's way beyond what you or I ever experience in our lifetime. Right, in we a, we
0: experience like six orders of magnitude. Yeah, probably. Right? I mean, yeah,
3: if you think about. You know, the smallest thing you've seen scurrying around on the bathroom floor to the you know the time you looked up at the Milky Way or maybe you visited a mountain or something you're know, for humans we live in a really narrow piece of the universe in terms of scale and clearly evolution has left us with the capacity to appreciate a little bit of it but as we've learned about the rest of the universe on the big scales and the small scales. Yeah, 63 orders of magnitude is where we're at right now from the edge of the, the knowable universe, the cosmic horizon. The knowable universe. Yeah, yeah the, the part of the universe from which light has had time to reach us in the last 13.8 billion years. And that's kind of one measuring stick for the size of the universe right now. But then all the way down to the smaller scales, in fact, there's, there's an equally large... Uh, universe inside us. Uh, it's interesting we kind of live close to the middle of that range if you if you look at those 63 orders of magnitude you say, well what's 30 orders of magnitude in? Well we're pretty close to that. it's around 0.1 millimeters. It's a halfway point in a logarithmic scale. Um, but yeah for us to conceive of all these different scales is extremely difficult part of the deal with the book, is to try to help you a little bit. I I wish I could say it'll make you appreciate all 63 orders of magnitude. And it can't really do that. But I think when you immerse yourself in the book and you turn the page and you turn the page and you turn the page, you begin to get a sense of just how many scales there are and how much stuff is going on at all these different scales. And that's another piece of the book is trying to tie... It together so that you can see, okay, I live at these scales, and these scales are embedded in something even bigger. Right? they're embedded in a galaxy, and the galaxy is embedded in the universe. But then within me are things also embedded and so on. So scale is a neat way of hooking you into this, this user manual, this this tour through what's happening in physical reality. And I got the impression that
0: the book is really your way of trying to share your awe about everything that's out there. It's because there are more, you've written other books that concentrate on one particular subject, but this is more like your appreciation for the universe.
3: Yeah, it is. And I I don't think it started out quite that way, but as I was working on it and working with Ron, who's an amazing artist and, and really, you know, has these wonderfully intuitive ideas about how to show stuff. And also the people who did the infographics in the book had wonderfully intuitive ideas. Yeah, for me, it became more and more personal um, and an opportunity. It's like the greatest pub talk, right? You're sitting there with a couple of beers and you start talking about what you do. And, and in that kind of environment, you can get enthusiastic and, and remember the things that got you into it in the first place. And it is that sense of all. And part of the book is trying to capture that for myself and hopefully for the readers as well. Uh, And I think in places it succeeds and I think everyone will have a slightly different experience going through it. But yeah, that awe, I mean, awe is an interesting sensation, right? And, uh, you know, these days we can go through, you know, 24 hours and not experience awe. Although we will hear the word awesome, Probably once every couple of hours. I, I would say so, if if not more, definitely. And so it loses a little bit of its uh, punch when every, everything is awesome. Um, but you know, the universe is awesome; it really is, and it's it's also extraordinary that we're here and capable of studying it. That's really all. You have the Einstein quote: "Perhaps the most amazing thing about the universe." Yeah, I, I, I snuck that in and then kind of modified it a little bit. So, you know, this is kind of paraphrasing what Einstein um, said, but he said the most extraordinary thing about the universe or the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it's comprehensible. Uh, as far
0: as we know. As anyway. far as we know.
3: And I actually, in the book, I was cheeky enough to uh, kind of modify that and extend that and say you know, the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible by itself because it has produced us or we have emerged out of it and you know three 13 billion years ago we were just uniform muck right just hydrogen and helium somehow out of all that these structures have formed that have minds have the ability to look around and say okay this is what's going on um, so it's kind of, the, it's the ultimate bootstrap, right? It's the ultimate self-starting motor, right? Universe at some point generates these things that go, hey, we're in a universe. Uh, that's, that's pretty amazing. That's, that's awesome. I, I keep thinking of the immortal words of Tom Hulse in um, Animal House. <laughs> can I buy some pot from you? (laughs) You know, it's funny. Someone was telling me that same story last night. In reference to your book? In reference to the book. Yeah, it's like, wow, you're telling me inside my finger is a whole universe and inside that universe is another universe. (laughs) Because you actually have the the number of uh, different scales
0: right within your fingertip. That's right. As an example (laughs) in the book. Let's talk about which you get into on on both ends of the 63 orders of magnitude, just how much nothing there is. Mm. It's really mind-boggling how empty the vast enormity of space is, for the most part. And also when you get down into the subatomic realm, all the emptiness within what we think of as solid matter
3: and atoms. Yeah. Yeah, we're mostly nothing. Um, in the book, I, I try to get at this in a couple of different ways. So on the big scales, you can ask a, a question, do a little thought experiment. What if I collected together all the stars in our galaxy, right? And line them up, put them in a box, like a box of fruit or something. Now, I can't really do that because physics, you know, physics won't let me have fun, right? Gravity will take over and make a mess. But let's just imagine I could do it. So our galaxy has maybe 100 billion to 200 billion stars in it. If I brought them all together and lined them all up, it would occupy a volume actually about the same size as our solar system. It would all fit inside the orbit of Neptune, which, if you think about it, is an incredible amount of empty space that's just been eliminated. It's just gone away like that. So even something like our galaxy, our Milky Way... If you ever see a nice artist's impression of it, of course, we've got those in the book, it looks pretty substantial. Uh, But in fact, where the space, there's really space, a lot of space, and you take that out and you're not left with too much. You can kind of, you know, galaxy to go, you can put it in a bag and take it with you. And then equally, like you say, on the the subatomic and atomic scale, there are all these zones of scale where at least from our perspective at the moment and our understanding of what's going on there at the moment, there isn't much. So if you go, for example, from the scale that we uh, associate with the size of an atom, where the electrons are floating around in their cloud of probability, to go from that scale, which is like 10 to the power of minus 10 meters, down to the size of the atomic nucleus, is at least another five orders of magnitude. That's a lot of... And there's not much there. It's just maybe a fleeting electron. It's just this hollow thing. Um, but we're made of all of that. So equally, you can squeeze all of humanity into very small packages. I think the, the example people often use is when they're actually talking about uh, things called neutron stars, which is a state of matter where you've eliminated all the electrons and you've squashed all the atomic nuclei together. So a sugar cube-sized piece of that sort of material where you've squeezed out all that atomic space, uh, a sugar cube-sized piece would have the mass of all humans, all 7.5 billion of us. I mean, that's If you kind of dehydrated us all in a nuclear sense, that's what you'd end up with. Yeah, and the uh, picture of the sugar cube in the book,
0: uh, the cube is being fed upon <laughs> by ants and now it has a whole... A whole
3: different... I've just given it a meaning. whole other meaning, yeah.
0: Um, this is not the first book, as you very uh, forthrightly say, that attempts to cover all these scales. There's the famous Powers of Ten, and that's actually a film. Um, your your uh, illustrator, Ron Miller, talks in his little author bio at the end about, which I couldn't help but think about as I'm looking at the book, about the, the classic sci-fi movie... Um, the disappearing. What's it?
3: Is it the disappearing man? Well, I guess is the Fantastic Voyage. Wait, oh, Fantastic Voyage, which is Voyage where they shrink people. Right. And, yeah, the sh- Incredible Shrinking the Man. Incredible Shrinking yeah, Man. The That's Incredible it. Shrinking Man. Yeah. Um, where the guy just shrinks away
0: and gets smaller and smaller. But but you you pay homage, in fact, to all these other efforts before you, and th- this one I think differs from those in that those were. Uh, they're they're all really good they're, and they're but they're pretty straightforward in terms of what they're they're just trying to get those notions of size across whereas right. you're also sharing uh our current state of knowledge about a lot of these things and and just again that that feeling of awe.
3: Yeah, I think that's right. I those those books powers of 10, cosmic zoom which was a little movie I think the Canadian Film Board did back in the the 60s or 70s. Um yeah, I, they're wonderful. So we're not trying to outdo those classics. We're really trying to add to the library that they they form this library of knowledge and this idea of, of stepping through scales by updating everything. A lot has been learned in the last twenty years, sure. and we also try to do it a little bit differently because the those earlier um, those earlier works really relied heavily. On that feeling, if you flip the page and you, each page is literally another factor of 10 in scale, so they're really mimicking what happens when you you zoom a lens or something like that. We do that to some extent, but we felt that it would, be, it would be too cheeky just to reproduce that precisely. And these days, we're used to apps and iPads and VR and so on, so we're a little less impressed with that kind of visceral experience. But the beauty of... of Modifying that a little bit and basically adding waypoints, having stopping off points, and in that journey is—it's like traveling down a highway and actually getting to stop occasionally and look at stuff. Oh, there's a sign for, you know, the best apple pie in, in America. We'll stop and look at that. Well, there's a sign for the the most interesting you know, molecule in the universe. We'll stop and look at that. Or the most interesting atom, which happens to be carbon. So we'll, we'll take a, a sidestep into that. So, yeah, it was an interesting process putting the book together, bearing in mind what had come before, these wonderful works that helped inspire it, but then also wanting to look to the future and wanting to lay out really the the state-of-the-art scientific knowledge now, but also to kind of lay breadcrumbs for people to see, you know, what we don't know, where are the gaps, what's coming next. And we don't go overboard on that, but that's kind of underlying the whole book. And at the end, I talk a little bit about that, that, you know, what's next? Well, maybe someone looking at this book is the person who's going to do the what next.
0: Yeah, exactly.
3: Uh, the, The...
0: Idea that carbon is the most interesting atom is that from a life centric point of view, or is it, or is it the most interesting if there's no life too?
3: Yeah, I, I mean, I'm very, I'm very biased
0: <laughs> as a so, living organism. As a
3: living organism, you know, I, I need that carbon. Um, well, carbon is fascinating because it, you know, it does have just the right set of properties terms of its electron count and their energy levels to be able to form all these marvelous molecular bonds can bond to other stuff and it can build big complex molecules and it really is the only element right now that we know of that that, that does that so efficiently there are other elements that kind of get close to it but you know it just has it's just got the right stuff that's just how it is um and it's also interesting because of how it's produced in the universe. A lot of it is produced in a type of nuclear reaction called a triple alpha reaction deep inside stars that is very finely tuned. I, that, you know, that, that word has a lot of baggage to it. But, you know, it's that reaction that produces carbon is a little bit unexpected it took people quite a while to figure out how carbon was produced in stars because it's it doesn't appear to be so easy until you spot the you know the nuclear physics trick that lets it happen. So carbon is interesting on many many levels, um, but yeah, carbon prejudice is big amongst living things, <laughs> and uh, and I, I I suspect that's true across the universe, right? Because of the it's a reductionist
0: viewpoint, but that's it's how it is. it is. That's the easiest yeah, thing right. to happen in terms of building something that's alive. Well, that's probably what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, I couldn't help but think about an experience I had years ago where I was at a party and I heard some people talking about, uh, there was a guy who had a TV show where he would uh, tell audience members that he was communicating with their dead relatives And they're talking about this and it appears that they're really buying this. So I said, you know that every single atom in your body was produced in a star that exploded billions of years ago. And they said they weren't science people. They said, really? And I said, yeah. And I said, isn't that just like unbelievable enough that? You still want to talk to dead people? Which is clearly just, you know, this guy's a uh, charlatan, but you still want to talk to dead people? And they both said, yeah, that's what we want. (laughs) So there's only a certain amount of enthusiasm that it may be possible to generate in people with the kind of information that that you're giving. But, you know, for those of us who are are going to accept it and, and be awestruck by it it's pretty incredible
3: <laughs> yeah that's that's a great story and I think uh, you know my hope is maybe maybe we can catch a few of those people right yeah you know, maybe if their guard is down and they're not thinking about the afterlife for a minute and they open the book something will catch their eye one of the pictures right the beauty of an illustrated book is it can catch you without you having to read anything you go oh what's that? So, you know, maybe, maybe that's a service to humanity if we can catch a few more of those people.
0: Yeah, and, and again,
3: the illustrations, you know,
0: I, I prefer to read on a Kindle, actually. But in this case, you want the book because it's a, it's a very uh, high production value book with, you know, creamy, thick paper. And the, and the artwork is just beautiful and, and really conveys a lot of the concepts that you're talking about in the text.
3: Yeah, yeah, we we definitely took a lot of care over that. It's full color all the way through, which was kind of fun because usually with books you're told, oh, you can't really have color, that's too expensive. Um, so we really went for it with the book. And yeah, and I think, yeah, there's something about the, the physical book you can flip back and forth between the pages. I mean you already mentioned this you know you might see an image here, you might suddenly flip over from galaxies to planets to bacteria. You can do that very efficiently, and I think you know our visual memory is such that we piece things together, we remember where certain pages were. And that happens with a physical book much better than with a Kindle or something like that. Um, So I, I think, yeah, the physical book is the thing to get. We'll be right back after this.
2: Hi, Brian and Andrea here from Base Pairs, the podcast of Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. And those Fitter Families competitions we were talking about at the top of the show, they were part of a dark time in America when the public became enamored with the pseudoscience of eugenics.
1: Now, with new gene editing tools like CRISPR being used on the human genome, we risk repeating history.
2: Search for base pairs wherever you get your podcasts to learn more.
3: Now more with Caleb Scharf about his blogging for Scientific American. Yeah, so I've been writing blog at Scientific American for a few years now, Um, possibly five years maybe. I think it's coming up to five years, and it's called Life Unbounded. And life, comma, unbounded, I should say. And that's a little bit of an in joke because unbounded problems in science and physics, a particular class of, of problem to solve. Um, but then it's also speaking about the, the nature of this thing we call life. And so the blog is about life, it's about planets, it's about astrophysics, it's the whole shebang. Um, and yeah, I, I write this regularly, I talk about material that some of it comes up in the book but other stuff is is about the latest research my interpretation of of new results I sometimes try to wax a little philosophical about some of it Uh, so for example talking about gravitational wave discoveries and and trying to reflect on that as a as a um, waypoint in human history because I think it really is um, but, you know, you have to step back and think about it for a moment to appreciate that.
0: Yeah, it took 100 years to confirm Einstein. I mean, con- considering how much else we've accomplished, that's, that's still a good amount of time. That's how difficult it was to create the technology that enabled humanity to get these LIGO results about gravitational waves.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, It's it's extraordinary technology. It makes these exquisitely uh, precise and delicate measurements, and it's taken the brain power of a lot of really smart people and a lot of perseverance. They could have got it wrong. And we've got a lot of stuff on LIGO and
0: gravitational waves on our website, so check those out. Um, In fact, your most recent blog entry is dated October 19th, and it is Basically, some of the material in the book, very early in the book, uh, but before that, you you have a blog piece just from a, a couple of weeks ago about the Osiris, uh, Osiris mission, which yes. which is a really interesting concept. So I thought we might just spend a couple of minutes on that.
3: So I wrote this little piece about the Osiris Rex mission. So that's a a space mission, a science mission that's out there. It's en route to an asteroid, and it's actually going to sample that asteroid and try to bring back some of that material to study. But en route, the spacecraft did something interesting. It flew by the Earth. Uh, It did what's called a gravity assist maneuver. So it used the Earth. It's been out there for a year or two already, and it's looped back around. It used the, the gravity of the Earth to adjust its trajectory in order to meet up with this asteroid later on. But it did something kind of neat when it came by. It switched on its cameras and its instruments, and it studied the Earth. And it studied the Earth in the way that you might imagine studying an exoplanet. Let's say in the future you fly some automated mission way in the future, past another world, or with our next generation of incredible space telescopes, we get to study possibly Earth-like exoplanets in more detail. What would they look like? Well, it turns out that we actually have limited knowledge of what we look like in those sorts of conditions and studied that way. And this OSIRIS-REx mission kind of duplicated a really beautiful experiment that took place back in the 1990s with the Galileo mission to Jupiter. And it too, Galileo mission, also flew by the Earth to adjust its trajectory. And it switched everything on and it studied the Earth. And there is a beautiful classic paper in the Nature Journal by Carl Sagan and a couple of other authors where it's the study of a potentially habitable planet, which just happens to be ours, Uh, And so it's kind of a a nice, you know, blindfold experiment. Let's pretend that we don't know what this place is. Can we tell what's happening here? And so that's what they did with Galileo, and now Osiris Rex repeated it. And I really wanted to write about that, because I think it's such a, it's a beautiful experiment. Scientifically, it's, it's wonderful, because we don't still have a particularly good grasp on what our world would look like if you didn't know anything about it ahead of time, if you just took some snapshots, what would you think? And so that's what it, it was about. And now we have a baseline
0: database for some time in the future when we're looking at other planets to see if they have certain qualities that might make us think that
3: they're habitable. That's right. Or inhabited, even. Yeah, that's right. Every time you do this, you learn a little bit more. You learn about what kind of chemicals you can register in a planet, because plants are a complex mix of all sorts of chemicals. But there are certain molecules and compounds that we associate with life. So you can look for that. You can look at the atmospheric composition. But you can also look at things like, is the ocean sparkling? Does it have an ocean? That shows up in this kind of data. Um, so it, it also provides... Clues as to you know surprising things that you might go and look for, like ocean sparkle. Who would have thought, right, that you could possibly spot that? But you can, not just around the Earth, but potentially on other planets. I'll be back in a moment.
1: Hey, all. Brian here from Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory,
2: and I'm Andrea. Base Pairs is the podcast about the power of genetic information, and with that power comes responsibility.
1: In our newest episode, we speak with experts like Jennifer Doudna, co-creator of the revolutionary gene editing tool.
2: To find out how to avoid the unscientific traps that gave rise to the American eugenics movement. Find us on Apple
1: Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and wherever else you get your podcasts.
0: That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can read about the huge column of magma straining for the surface under Antarctica. Why is it there? And what does it want? And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.